Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Let's do a couple of headlines and then jump to our conversation with Nick Pitts. Um, all right, so Hurricane Delta definitely still taking its toll, um, grieving with those who are grieving the loss of the lives of at least four individual, hundreds of individuals, 400,000 people currently without power along the Gulf of Mexico. Is that possible? I might have to check those numbers. Uh, how about let's go with hundreds of thousands and be not quite as specific at this hour of the morning. Um, all right. The, spin- the Senate confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett opened yesterday as expected. Uh, we talked about her opening statement yesterday morning. If you want to grab that, go get the podcast from yesterday's program at MyFaithRadio.com on the Mornings with Carmen page. Um, she heard questions or fielded questions from Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, most of which were focused on the Affordable Care Act. Vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris uh, claimed that Republicans are trying to approve Barrett, quote, in time to ensure they can strip away the protections in the Affordable Care Act. I would suspect that the Affordable Care Act is going to be uh, prominently featured in the ongoing conversations that the Senate Judiciary Committee has with uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Why? Well, because they recognize that attacking her at points of faith is not going to help. They also recognize that... um, uh, being speculative about the addition of a of a particular person to the court related to cases that are currently not pending before the court, let's say conversations related to Roe v. Wade, um, are just that, purely speculative, and voters see through that. And much of what happens in these uh, Senate Judiciary Committee meetings, particularly in this nomination process or this confirmation process, uh, is basically just theatrics, political theatrics, uh, because Ultimately, she's going to be confirmed. So uh, Judge Barrett replied to Kamala Harris this way. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so and courts should not try. A judge must apply the law as written, not as she wishes it were. Uh, so she, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, has a clear understanding of what each branch of government is supposed to be doing, and most importantly, what the judicial branch is not supposed to be doing, which is legislating. Uh, Democrats also focused uh, on abortion in terms of their questions. Um, I would certainly expect that we are going to see the questioning heat up. I'll use that uh, idea. Um, in the next day uh, and days to come, we're going to continue to watch. We're going to continue to pray and uh, we're going to continue to talk about it. Uh, we'll talk about it with Hunter Baker and Ben Johnson later in the week. Today, I'm going to turn my attention with Nick Pitts to um, a Pew Research survey that actually came out a couple of months ago. But because we're now actually in the heat 
of the election cycle, people are actually going to the polls. Now seems the time to actually look at the data. So who is uh, the American electorate and how are they likely to vote? That conversation up next with Nick Pitts. We'll be right back. Joining me again today, Nick Pitts. You can find him on Twitter at JNickPitts. You can also find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. Nick, welcome back. Carmen, so great to be with you this morning. It is a great day to be alive. You're not bored yet, are you? No way. Life, yeah, is, right? life is too short to be boring. I know. You know, like I, there's things that popped in my um, headline news feed today that I'm like, oh, see, that'd be fun to talk with Nick about. But <clears throat> I'd already agreed on a certain set of topics. So we will not be talking about... Um, Jennifer Aniston's new dog, nor why the TSA is now going to use floppy-eared dogs instead of pointy-eared dogs, nor are we talking about somebody returning some artifact to Pompeii because they believe they've been living under a curse for 15 years. So we're not talking about any of that, although, see, all of that would be really fun. (laughs) You know, there's the phrase from G.K. Chesterton that uh, boring is just for individuals that have uh, improperly conceived of adventure. And so, nevertheless, here we are. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm endlessly curious, and so are you, which is why it makes it fun to talk with you. Okay, so back in June, Pew Research, the Pew Research Center, um, released all of this data. And back in June, we weren't really all that excited to pay really super close attention to it, but now we are. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk today about um, the changing U.S. electorate. It focuses on race, education, but it also focuses on religion. So tell us what we know about the the demographics of the changing composition of the U.S. electorate. Yeah, it's it, it's fascinating. So when you look at some of the demographics relative to age among the 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 voting populace here in the U.S., what you what you're continuing to see is one a reflection of what's happening holistically across the U.S. And then at two, in particular, you're starting to see it really the idea of religiously unaffiliated Americans blocking or identifying more and more as Democrats. And so perfect example uh, is one data point that we can point to is that in 2008, 9% of Republicans were religiously unaffiliated. That number was around, uh, that number was 25% among Democrats. By 2019, that number was 20%. So it was an increase of 11% that were religiously unaffiliated Republicans. So 11% jumped to 20%. Among Democrats, that number now has jumped to um, 47%. So it had a significant jump, almost twice as uh, high of a jump um, uh, from 2008 to 2019. And I think what we're seeing there is one, it's just a it's a reality of the reflection of what's happening holistically across the U.S. of simply just more and more individuals are feeling the societal pressures to associate with a particular religion or to associate with the church, one. And then also, two, what we're seeing is that uh, there used to be a, a um, kind of a, a move among Democrats to either one be or a move among religiously unaffiliated to be independent, one, 
But now we're starting to see them more gravitate towards the Democratic Party, which is a fascinating uh, move, one might say. So the numbers here, um, you know, are related to people and how how they identify themselves. I mean, age obviously is not something we let people, you know, monkey around with very much. We basically say you are how old you are. Um, But in terms of how people describe themselves in relationship to faith, this the self-identified Christian or the self-identified unaffiliated religious person, which is just a curious category altogether. Um, (laughs) And then we talk about people who are white or non-white. And I, I guess, you know, as we approach the, um, the, the time when we're going to have a generation, I mean, we're going to, we're going to be a majority non-white country. If you are mm-hmm. talking about people who, um, you know, who, who have a blend, I mean, I, you know, there's just a lot of people who are just blended in terms of their racial heritage yeah. and their racial identity. And so, you know, we're, I, I think that it's important conversation has that people just better understand the world we're living in. And so they're less surprised to see um, particular groups of people voting in particular ways or hearing politicians speak in particular ways. So when politicians use distinctively Christian language, there's only a, a certain percentage of the population that's even hearing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you bring up two great points. Uh, one being that what's known in social science research is the halo effect. The halo effect is individuals are more likely to tell a researcher or a pollster or a surveyor uh, that it would be um, that they, they're performing certain things that might be seen as advantageous socially. So, for example, if I'm an individual that uh, goes to church maybe once a month and a researcher comes up to me and asks me how religious I am, um, I'm going to say that I do a little bit better so that I look good in front of the researcher. So I'm more likely to say, yeah, I go to church three or four times a month instead of one time a month. I see we're seeing that reflected, and it's known as the halo effect. Uh, Michael Weir in his book, uh, uh, Reclaiming Hope, or in his book, um, what he talks about is how when he was at the White House, he used a phrase, the least of these in the White House. And Mm -hmm. it, it went through a couple of iterations where people kept on striking out the least of these until eventually he uh, talked to his boss and his boss said that that doesn't make grammatical sense. And he realized then that the people in the White House just weren't familiar with that biblical language from Matthew. And what for him, it was a very fascinating and revealing aspect of. They're just largely just don't understand because, again, it's not socially advantageous to be a part of a church less individuals are familiar with religious language. And so it, it'll be interest That will be an interesting component. And then the ethnic part that you talk about, I think I find so fascinating. We're really uh, just a little bit behind Brazil in this respect, where that there's just an increase in, in individuals where the social there's no longer a stigma, thankfully, around the idea of mixed marriages. You're starting to see more and more individuals begin to uh, 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 come together from a racial standpoint to the extent that we're having uh much more, a lot, almost like, I want to say it's like six to eight times as many uh, marriages that are racially mixed, which in turn doesn't create a homogeneous experience based on the color of your skin. So you can't say the Hispanic vote votes one particular way because Hispanic looks radically different depending upon if it's from Texas or if it's in Vermont or, you know, and so it's just going to be very interesting moving forward around those factions. 
Yeah, it's just it's 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 fascinating. Um, all right, Nick and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to um, talk about a really a, a crazy case. There is a couple who has been barred by the court from offering foster care and ultimately adoption to their one year old granddaughter because, well, they're people of uh, a religious faith that says that. Um, you know, should this child determine in her future, remember, she's one year, she's she's a year old. Um, but, you know, should at some point in the future, she decide she's not a girl and she's a boy, they have a religious faith that says that's uh, that's not aligned with their worldview. And so the court is saying, well, if you're not open to that, you can't uh, foster this child, even if it is your own uh, your own progeny. It's just it's crazy. All right. Nick Pitts and I will be right back. Continue my conversation with Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. Uh, Nick, I'm going to let you read us in on this next story. Yeah, so um, again, it's, it's just absolutely, uh, it's just it's just fascinating where we're at today. So uh, a couple was barred from fostering their one-year-old great-granddaughter because of opposing homosexuality and gender transitioning, uh, which is just a key part of, of, or it's not a key part, but it is a component of their religious faith. Uh, the Washington Department of Child, Youth, and Families reached this decision based purely on the possibility that the one-year-old might eventually be attracted to girls or might want to transition. Um, uh, and so they've ruled against the idea of, of family members being able to raise this child. And instead, because of some cultural war issues, um, are going to keep the child in foster care and position or allow that child to be adopted by someone that um, shares these similar views that the state might have. But the tragedy of the matter is what we know to be true is that children are, um, uh, more often than not, it's better for a child to be raised with their family, one. Two, that there are um, 443,000 children like this today that are in foster care system that are in desperate need of a forever home. And on average, the child remains in state care for two years. But the idea that a family can't raise their children (laughs) and and the state is keeping them purely based on uh, hypothetical situations that may or may not happen it's just it's 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 just astounding that we're at this place in 2020 today when there's so much there's so many things that are going on that the, that a state would do that it's just it's just astounding this couple answered hypothetical questions about a hypothetical child and 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 the the agency you know the department then made this determination based on their hypothetical answers to hypothetical questions about hypothetical children. It, it's just, it, it, I, I, it boggles the mind. It absolutely boggles the mind. Um, so then we had a court ruling in relationship to this. This is certainly not a finished, uh, a finished conversation. So we'll continue to follow this. But I think at this point, um, the, the court has blocked the department from categorically banning foster parenting by people who have objections to homosexuality or gender transition. And they have also enjoined the department um, uh, to extend these uh, these 
hypothetical questions and base their decision making um, on those hypothetical on answers to those hypothetical questions. So there's a there is movement in this in terms of a judge seeking to hold the department accountable. Um, but the, it's a mess, and I think it portends things to come in other states. This will not remain isolated uh, to a situation in in Idaho. Like that's just it's just not going to stay there. All right, uh, let's talk about Oreos because um, I did not think until just the other day that uh, Oreos were a particularly political uh, food item. But apparently, my Oreos have gone political. Oh my goodness! <clears throat> and you think. Uh... There is Oreos are a reminder of God's goodness and grace in this broken world. As far as bologna, signs, I was going to say bologna now has a first, a new first name, and it's Oreo. Because <laughs> this story is bologna. Okay, go ahead. They so, are, they I, are, they are a good. They are, they it's, they are a transcendental good. I, it's possible, but they're know, now. Uh, yeah, you, it's being corrupted. <sighs> I know, and you and you, there is quite literally. I don't understand why they have. Regular Oreos. There should just be double stuffed, mega stuffed. I mean, I don't know anyone. Okay, that's we're ever gonna no, there's me, too much no. Cream I don't me. So I like the. I just want the regular one. I don't want any oh, extra wow. business in there, and I don't want it to be colored, and I don't want it to be flavored. I just want the Oreo to be an Oreo. I don't even like the mini Oreos because then the ratio of what's on the oh, inside no, to what's no, yeah. on the outside, it's not. It's no good. So, but no, this okay. is an issue of of. Oh, this is an issue of a company that makes a product that is just intended to be a cookie going yeah, and- so radically politicized that I now have to consider whether or not I'm ever buying an Oreo again. So, yeah. So what Carmen's referring to is Oreo in partnership with uh, um, some groups that are supportive of the LGBTQ plus community have announced a limited edition rainbow cookie. And, you know, there's this this shift that's happening in the business world today. Uh, in uh, 1962, Milton Friedman advanced the idea of shareholder primacy in his book, Capitalism and Freedom. It's the idea that the shareholder theory holds that a corporation has no social responsibility and its own real concern is to its shareholders. Um, however, a competing theory emerged in 1984. Edwin Freeman, uh, Edward Freeman advocated for the stakeholder theory in his work, Strategic Management. He said that stakeholders are one of uh, shareholders are one of many stakeholders who should be considered. So now no longer are Oreos concerned with their shareholders, but they're also concerned with their constituents. And increasingly, upwards of 70 percent of consumers want their companies to uh, make social stands that they back. And so Oreo, like uh, Dick's Sporting Good, like a variety of other uh, businesses, are beginning to give emphasis upon social issues and taking social stands. One, knowing it to be true that they have to prove to the, their cultural bona fides to their audiences. And more than likely, what we've continued to see is that, two, individuals that may be offended by it aren't necessarily moving away from it. So it really is just a plus game for them. And so in turn, now we have Oreos that have rainbow colors in support of the LGBTQ community. I, I don't I don't even hardly know what to say. It, <clears throat> OK, so we got to do one more story before we uh, before we leave. We've got friends over at the Restored Hope Network. Um, the Restored Hope Network is uh, mm-hmm. a ministry that works through a network of churches across the country um, to come alongside families who have a person who identifies as gay, lesbian, 
bisexual, transgender, on and on and on. Um, and it's a support network for those families. It's also a support network for people who have expressed their own desire to um, live a life that is aligned with uh, with God's design, not necessarily their physical felt desires. So people who want to live um, either celibate or live um, in in faithful heterosexual relationships um, and not have those uh, those ties broken by LGBTQ felt desires or political advocacy mm-hmm. or anything else. Okay. A Restored Hope Network had their Facebook page shut down with no explanation this week. Yeah, you, you know, there's a, a there's a move on social media channels now to begin to censor particular groups if they're uh, if they're not necessarily uh, with the zeitgeist of the time. You know, Facebook just recently announced earlier this month or earlier this week rather that they're going to be uh, censoring. They're going to be taking down pages that are Holocaust deniers, and now we're starting to see end of it entities like uh, Restored Hope Network that simply just, they, they just want to help individuals walk in holiness. They're not looking to transition them. They're not looking to turn them. They're just wanting them to walk in the holiness and the command that God's given us in Matthew to be perfect for I'm perfect, to, uh, uh, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And now Facebook is equate essentially with this move, they're equating them with Holocaust deniers, which is just absolutely mm. ridiculous. Yeah, it's very, very troubling. All right, Nick, um, thank you for helping us uh, understand the headlines that we are reading today and to do so through a Christian worldview. It's always a delight to talk with you. Really appreciate it. So great to be with you, Carmen. we got to take a break for Knowing God. We'll be right back. So Cesar Vidal is uh, an internationally well-known character who may be completely unknown to you, um, in addition to being the author of 180 books and a, uh, a podcast host that gets nearly 2 million downloads a month, suffice it to say, slightly more than Mornings with Carmen. Uh, he lives in Miami now. He has been a prominent media voice in his home country of Spain Uh, for many years, but um, his views have forced him out of Spain. He now lives here in the United States, uh, lives in Miami. He has become a legalized U.S. citizen. He has a new book out, uh, yes, in English, A Changing World, Patriotism Against a Globalist Agenda. Um, It's meaty, it's weighty, but it has so much really good content in it that I am excited to bring Cesar's worldview uh, to our audience here at Mornings with Carmen. So, Cesar Vidal, up next. We'll be right back. When kids are little, they respond well to clearly defined commands. When they grow up, however, they begin to resist taking orders from mom and dad. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you have a teen in your house, you already know what I'm talking about. Kids don't like to be told what they should have done or what they need to do better. When teens are wrestling with new issues in life, they seldom respond to a lecture. Many times repetition at this stage of development only reminds them of how they failed or missed an opportunity to shine. Constant nagging, correction, and badgering often just pushes them away. So back off a little. Most of the time, what's really needed is a listening ear. Mark Gregson is devoted to helping parents of struggling teens. For more helpful parenting resources, go to ParentingTodaysTeens.org. ParentingTodaysTeens.org. 
or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining me now, Cesar Vidal. Uh, you may not recognize his name, but if you have been paying attention to uh, global politics and particularly the way that um, democracies rise and bloom across the world, then you um, then you are already a fan. Um, Cesar hosts a wildly popular podcast. Uh, he lives in Miami, Florida now. He is a native of Spain. Uh, and he is the author of, I don't know, some 180 books, but the newest one is the one I'm holding in my hand now, and it's called A Changing World, Patriotism Against a Globalist Agenda. Cesar, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much. I must tell you that I'm a, an American citizen, and I'm proud of it. I was born and bred in Spain, but but right now I'm American. I know, and I and I love that. And you write like an American, and you... Um, uh, and you advocate for um, democratic principles, and you are helping us to not only see but hear, hear when other people are advocating for um, what you, the, the term you're using is a globalist agenda. So what I would like for you to start with is defining for our audience, what is a globalist agenda? Well, this is very clear because uh, some persons may think that we are conspiranoics or something. Oh, but but there's a real definition of the globalist agenda in the memoirs of David Rockefeller. In the page 405, Rockefeller is telling, some even believe we, Rockefeller family, are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States. Characterizing my family and me as internationalists of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure, one word, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. This is the definition of David Rockefeller himself. The globalist agenda is a secret cabal working against the best interests not only of the United States but the different countries and trying, conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure, one world, if you will. So, Cesar, you and I both know that um, if we were to Google uh, globalist uh, agenda, what would come up is Wikipedia's um, entry, which describes it all as a conspiracy theory and a hypothesis. Um, but what you lay out in the book is there's a lot of evidence uh, to where we don't have to say, hey, these these are the specific families involved, but there are some key individuals um, who are easy to identify, and you do that in the book, there are also some themes, or uh, the word you use is dogmas, which are also easy to identify when we're talking about uh, the globalist agenda. And one of those would be kind of the deconstruction um, of nationalism altogether. So can you talk about um, how it is that you know a particular nation's identity is really sought to be deconstructed or torn down when a person adopts a globalist agenda? 
Well, this is very clear. The globalist agenda has three foes, three enemies. The first are the countries, are the, the national identity. The second are family. The third one is biblical Christians. I underline these biblical Christians. Well, the first is the, the national identity, because if you want to create a new world, one world, you must destroy the national identities. And this is, well, this is very easy. You must know that, for example, 80% of the information we are, we are receiving through media is in the hands of only eight transnational corporations. And of course, you are excluding China, India, or Russia, so that we are in the hands of eight transnational, well, brainwashing most of the of the Western population. And, and you must delete totally our uh, national identity. You must talk, well, uh, for example, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in a debate in a very important TV corporation, and the other person was telling me that U.S. was built up upon the slavery of black people, the theft of Mexicans, and the oppression of the Native Americans. And, and I was obligated to tell, well, this is totally false, this is totally true, and you are trying to destroy the national identity. You are blaming people of things that are totally twisted in a historical way. And of course, this is one of the targets of the globalist agenda. We want to make you feel ashamed because of your past. But in the case of U.S., of course, we have dark pages in the past, but we cannot forget that U.S. is the first modern democracy. We never have a dictatorship. We never have communists in power. We never had fascist state in U.S. And this country has been a real shining light to the rest of the planet. So that we must not feel ashamed. Of course, there are some few dark pages, but the bright and good pages in our history are very important, and the globalist agenda cannot tolerate this. Cesar, um, you know, one of the reasons that the globalist agenda can't tolerate um, any nation, you know, having uh, having highlights, right, as opposed to just always pointing out the lowlights, is that it would suggest that the way that one group of people or one nation is pursuing a future filled with hope or human flourishing is better than the way other nations are currently pursuing it. But there's no way, uh, I mean, I would, I would argue, there is no way that um, democracy can flourish if particular people groups in particular places aren't self-governing. And there's no way to be self-governing if there's some globalist group ultimately governing all of it. I mean, am, am, I, am I wrong that nationalism is actually important in terms of human flourishing? Well, I think not nationalism, but patriotism. Uh, na yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you for clarifying very, that word. 
Yes, there is a very important difference. Well, a good uh, French patriot, uh, General de Gaulle, who was leading the resistance against the Nazis in World War II, was telling, well, the nationalist is a man who loves his country but needs to hate the other countries. The patriot loves his country and he doesn't need hate the other countries. I'm a real American patriot. I'm not an American nationalist. I can love this country and I don't need to hate in other countries to love my country. And I think this is very important because this was the case of Jefferson or Washington or Lincoln. They didn't need to hate any country. Even in the case of the founding fathers, they didn't hate uh, UK. They didn't hate England. They, uh, well, accept the English roots of most of them. But Certainly, they did love U.S., they did love America, and I think this is very important. And of course, this is totally opposite to this kind of, um, well, may, uh, way of making things of the globalist agenda that is going against uh, the patriotism is against the country, the love of the country. You are dividing the country. We are not Americans. We are, well, black, Hispanic, gays, feminists, etc. But we are not Americans. We are devised to try to erode the, the roots of this country. And this is very important. This is very important. Um, all right. I am talking with Cesar Vidal. We will be back in just a moment. I want you to check out his website, CesarVidal.com. There you can uh, get a link to his podcast, Wildly Popular. You can also read his blog, connect to the book. The book is A Changing World, Patriotism Against a Globalist Agenda. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Cesar Vidal. Um, you should check out his website, cesarvidal.com. Um, opportunity for you to engage um, with all of his content. Um, it is in Spanish, which is a bit of a stumbling block for um, <clears throat> me, but that's okay. The book is in English, A Changing World, Patriotism Against a Globalist Agenda. It's excellent. I have, um, I don't know, I probably have about 50 dog-eared pages in here, Cesar, and so I know I won't get through um, through all of these questions, but I, I'd like to circle back around. We talked about the first enemy of globalism, and that being national identity, um, but the next two are really critical. The enemies of globalism um, and globalization being family and biblical Christians. Let's talk about those two and how they are under attack. Well, first, uh, the family is uh, a stumbling block to the uh, globalist agenda for two reasons. The globalist agenda wants to low the demography, the, the population in this planet, so that, well, everybody knows that the population of this planet is closely linked to family. And second, uh, the family is the last refuge, the last uh, trench that human beings have in any situation. Wall Street, Wall Street can collapse, the institution can crumble, and 
anybody can go to his family and ask for help. So that we must destroy family because it's the way, the straight way to have a lot of sheep in this uh, in this tiny blue planet and without any kind of help. Well, mm. this is done through the gender ideology, the gender agenda, but also through abortion and a more and more liberal ab- abortion. Let me give you a couple numbers. Uh, from uh, the, the 80s, the legalization of abortion in most of the Western countries countries in the 80s, we have had 1,400 millions of abortions, so that we have destroyed uh, through abortion over the total population of China. This is incredible. This is more than 20 times the death in both were wars. This is incredible, but let me give you another number. Um, everybody knows about Black Lives Matter. Well, the black lives destroyed through abortion in US since 80s t- till now is 18 million black lives. Nobody mm. seems matter about these black lives, but this is the triple, this is three times the Jews that perish during the Holocaust in Europe. So that, well, we're trying to destroy family, we're going to destroy the persons that is and that are unborn, we're going to destroy the age people through euthanasia laws in the future. Now, uh, there are several euthanasia laws in Western Europe, even in Spain, where I was born. And this is added to the gender ideology. Of course, everybody knows that homosexuality is not is not uh, producing new births. If every one of us would be homosexual, well, our human species have disappeared from this planet millennia ago. So that the second target is family. We're going to destroy family. We're going to talk about, we have a lot of families. We're going to destroy the love between a man and a woman. We're going to make them enemies fighting against each other. And this is is the second target of the globalist agenda. And the third uh, is biblical Christians, and that is a very specific definition, and you're really highlighting there the term biblical. Yeah, and this is very important. Let me give you again another number. In the first days of the past year, 2019, in Bogota, Colombia, there was a kind of council, big council, big meeting of the LGTBI uh, corporations, organizations in Latin America. And they arrived to three conclusions. First, the globalist agenda and in a very specific way, the gender ideology is a stop in Latin America. We must arrive to our target several years ago, but we are a stop. Second conclusion, 
we must blame of this stop to the evangelical churches because they have gone out to the streets defending life and family and they have stopped us. We don't have any kind of problem with Roman Catholic Church because it's true some of the Roman Catholic are people very pro-life and pro-family, but the organization is a kind of pyramid, is a hierarchy, and we can could a deal with them. The problem is the price, but we can could a deal. But these evangelicals are unorganized. They have not a hierarchy. They are not like an army, and they have stopped our agenda in Latin America. Third conclusion, we must destroy them. We must infiltrate them. So that this is not the idea, the conspiranoic idea of some uh, Peruvian or Mexican evangelical, probably most of the, of the evangelicals in Latin America does know about this, but these were the unanimous conclusions of the uh, LGTBI organizations of whole Latin America. A real problem are people with principles, with biblical principles that are not organized, that are only grassroots, but that have decided to go to the streets telling, please don't touch my children. We're going to defend life. We're going to defend the family. So that this is very important. We must destroy the strength and the soul of the countries, of the nations. We must destroy the family because it's the last trench to defend our, ourselves. And we must destroy people who have spiritual principles that are pro-life and, of course, pro-family. I, I think this is very clear, and I must insist this is not a speculation. Everybody, anybody who who goes to my book can read hundreds and hundreds of sources telling this, because the the uh, globalist agenda is very clear, and many times they publish their targets, and they do in a very candid way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, Cesar, we have to leave it right there today, but I look forward to a future conversation with you. Cesar Vidal, uh, the book is A Changing World, Patriotism Against a Globalist Agenda. I want to let you know that um, the, the, the fifth part of the book um, is actually, you know, how to resist it, the resistance to the globalist agenda. So there's a lot of hope in this book as well. Uh, there's some how-to at the end, but man, he lays it out. He lays it out in terms of uh, why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. Cesar, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much, Carmen. It was a real pleasure and a real privilege. Yeah, it was, uh, it was our honor. We'll be right back. All right, I realized my conversation with him ran a little long, but um, man, it's such a meaty, meaty subject matter uh, and such good stuff. All right, uh, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. I feel obligated to ask you, though, before we go, where in the word are you today? We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.